I am Kale Maestri. Welcome to the latest episode of Engineering Reimagine. Humanity depends on engineering to help solve the wicked problems our world faces. In this podcast series, we explore how, like engineers, people from all walks of life are reimagining the future and their leadership roles in it. What can we learn from our guests' compelling and inspiring stories to help us shape and design a better future and reimagine engineering? Universities are ancient institutions, with the world's oldest, the University of Al Karawiyan in Fez, Morocco, being founded in 859 AD. They have long been considered the melting pot of society's ideas, culture, and change, responsible for kick-starting social revolutions, such as the 1968 protests that saw students across the world march against the Vietnam War. Some of their customs, such as the cap and gown, still adorned during today's graduation ceremonies, have stood the test of time, while others are dramatically changing. What role will universities play in the future against the backdrop of new technologies? Will the advent of digital learning mean that university campuses become a thing of the past? Our two guests today are Professor Ian Harper, Dean of Melbourne Business School at the University of Melbourne, and Susie Pern, Client Director, Education and Research, Built Environment at global engineering and infrastructure advisory company Oricon. Ian is an Australian economist best known for his work in public policy, who has worked with governments, banks, corporates and leading professional services firms at the highest levels. He has been a partner of Deloitte Access Economics and currently sits on the board of the Reserve Bank of Australia. He became the sixth dean of Melbourne Business School at the University of Melbourne in March 2018. Susie began working in social infrastructure more than 20 years ago and has specialised in the sector ever since. She has played lead management roles in the planning and delivery of numerous infrastructure programmes and projects, including several worth over $1 billion. She's passionate about having a positive impact on people's lives through education and research. Today, Susie and Ian are discussing how universities need to reimagine their futures and what role engineers can play in assisting them achieve this transformation. Ian, welcome to the Engineering Reimagined podcast. Lovely to be here, Susie. The first time that we crossed paths was uh, back in the 90s when I was doing my MBA at the Melbourne Business School and I remember that you were lecturing in economics mm. and you were one of the lecturers that was well respected and mm. who was known to be a great lecturer and a fantastic storyteller. It was um, so much so that it was actually really hard to get into your lecture rooms. Oh, right. <laughs> and to be totally honest, when I was at uni, I used to struggle to stay awake in my lectures. <laughs> But, uh, but you kept me awake. Good. I'm really delighted to have you join us today and to be able to share you with, I guess, an unbounded audience. So my first question is, what drew you to be an academic in the first place? What drew me was the independence that academics have to think and write and speak about issues that they regard as important. It was the freedom to write, to think, to speak, to be an opinion maker in your own right that appealed to me. So from the time that you began and now to your role as the dean, 
How do you see that universities have changed over that time or the environment for universities has changed for that over that time and particularly the connection between universities and businesses? Well, universities have changed quite dramatically uh, now. In fact, it is for more than 40 years since I started at university as an undergraduate myself, obviously. Uh, the universities for much of that time were heavily dependent on the government for funding. Uh, they still are dependent on the government, but to nowhere near the same extent. And in those days, uh, the universities were effectively forbidden from raising income from any other source. Uh, and that constrained their growth. Now that the um, universities can charge whatever they want to charge for foreign students, for international students, uh, they can also charge domestic students, but of course those fees are capped. Uh, nevertheless, tuition is now a major source of revenue for universities, which it never was, at least post-1972, when um, university fees were abolished by the then Whitlam government. Uh, and needless to say, over the last 10 or 15 years, with the rapid growth of international students, particularly from China, but not exclusively from China, uh, and the development more generally of the, of the developing world, so there are more and more people in our region who can afford to take um, tertiary education, this has been a bonanza for universities. I mean, here in this state, here in Victoria, uh, the state's two largest export earners are the University of Melbourne and Monash University. So this has become very, very big business, uh, as a result of which the universities have become wealthier and more powerful. So if you then look ahead, Ian, having just looked back, mm. what more do you see in terms of change ahead? The, the big thing that's happened to both of them, to business and to universities in the last 20, 25 years, has been the digital revolution. Uh, that has created an enormous disruption in the way that traditional Australian businesses have operated and the structure the industrial structure, which industries have grown and which haven't grown, uh, and the universities being right in the heart of education and the knowledge business have found themselves swept up in this mm -hmm. on both sides. They've had to transform the way they do their business and they've been called on to supply skills for the digital economy, for the knowledge economy. And how do you think universities need to continue to change going forward. So the digital revolution has made place so much more important, mm. which has made cities so much more important. And in this country, the bulk of our universities, certainly the biggest ones, are in the cities. When you look into the future, as you've asked me to do, what I see is the increasing dominance of services, high-value-added professional technical services, professional services, health, education, financial services. They'll be engines of growth in the cities and they'll be fed by the growth of the cities. And they in turn will draw upon the, the technology, the insight, the know-how and the skills which a modern university can provide. And the university in turn will be fed by that. And the universities are in the cities, they will feed the cities and be fed by the cities. There's the future. Do you think that they're changing fast enough? Is there more that they need to do than you've seen so far? Universities are ancient institutions. Mm. Uh, the oldest university was established in the 14th century, so they're essentially medieval institutions. And as anybody who's attended a graduation ceremony of the university would quickly realise, uh, a number of those medieval habits are still well and truly alive within universities uh, and are recognised by that. 
Now, there's a good side to that. You don't want um, universities to change too, too rapidly uh, because they have an important role in curating, that is to say, preserving, looking after, the stock of human understanding and knowledge. So you want an institution that firstly uh, values the fact that people can contribute what, what they think in seminars, in written work, in classrooms. And, and it's very important for us to preserve the fact that the university is a place where there is freedom of speech and freedom of thought, academic freedom in its broadest sense. So that requires a particular um, institutional structure where those things are valued and preserved. Uh, on the other side, uh, universities obviously been fermenting places for social revolutions in various dimensions. You think of you know the 1968 revolutions and Berkeley and the University of Paris and such like, uh, and Vietnam marches and so forth. So you do expect universities also to be places where there is um, you know agitation for social change. Uh, now you're talking about technical change, or if you like, change in the business world, technological change coming from the digital world, there the universities uh, are and have been um, at both ends of the spectrum. So, so there are universities like Harvard, for instance, which, which have entire classrooms that just consist of screens on walls. And you can participate in um, uh, you know, HBX programs from anywhere in the world and be a, a, literally a face on a wall, but it's all in virtual reality. You're, almost, you're like there. Uh, together with the traditional classroom instruction, lecture at the front, students around, people asking questions, conversations taking place. They're both there. And the universities as a group have not jumped with the digital revolution and simply said, wow, we could do all of this online. Uh, I spoke uh, several years back on this very subject to a, um, a group of, uh, of investment bankers uh, who'd come from around the world for this particular convention in Sydney. And I made exactly the point. You know, this is, an, this is a global investment bank. Why are you here, let alone in one room, talking the business of this conference? Why don't we do the whole thing on the web? Just do a webcast, right? Well, they just looked at you, right? Don't be absurd. We need to be together to talk through these ideas, to confront one another, challenge one another, eyeball one another, enjoy a drink with one another, get to all that. Human interaction is integral to the business of investment banking. Well, the same is true of any intellectual pursuit, clearly the university being in the same box. So my answer is that the universities um, will need time to change, and some of that chain dragging is a good thing because they have a role in curation and preservation. Some of it's a good thing because there are aspects of the way the universities operate we don't want to change. And then other aspects, yes, we'll see the universities rather more, more tentative and slower off the mark in other areas that, that where you, know, you can be frustrated because business is looking and saying, come on, guys, you've got to get with the program here. This is not how it's done anymore. And unless you change, we really can't do business with you. We'll have to do it ourselves. Right? And that happens, mm. uh, particularly in the area of business schools. Mm-hmm. So you can see then businesses driving that change. Oh, yeah. What else do you think will yeah. drive the change and keep pushing the universities to... Oh. The answer to that is quite clear, Susie, young people. One of the great strengths of the university, of course, is that it is a place where students come. That's where the, the impetus comes for change, for new ideas, for challenge, for people who, who think the old way of doing this is just wrong. It, it, there's no coincidence that right from the earliest days, it was the, it was the young people coming 
to the university, to be a part of the conversation. And then, you know, learning. And of course, at some point saying, you know, basically, you know, excuse me, <laughs> I don't think you're right. <laughs> right. And having an environment in which that is not just uh, encouraged, it's actively pursued. What role do you think engineers can play in re-engineering education and research? And, you know, just in case it ends up uh, being the case that my colleague, the Dean of Engineering, listens to this thinking, what on earth is he doing talking about engineering? Yes, I'm not an engineer. We need to turn to those people who make things work. And, and I'm no engineer, but that's how I understand engineering, that, it, that engineers are classically experts in, in designing and building and making things that actually work, you know, bridges that stand up. Um, in this instance, then, we need engineers and, of course, architects who'll make it appealing to look at and to live in, but importantly, it needs to work, that we are able to be together in cities, in more concentrated groups, in more densified places, without tripping over each other, uh, causing each other to be distressed because these systems don't work, but in the, in the right physical and then social context, creating spaces where people can meet up and encounter one another and discuss these ideas, plonk all that, if you like, into the core of the city so that more and more of us encounter one another in environments that are conducive to creative thinking. That's where the productivity comes from. But if it doesn't work, Susie, if we trip over each other or we can't get in or it's too crowded, it's too unpleasant, then, then people don't come. And, and if they don't come, this magic doesn't work. So there's a job for engineers to be thinking about the... Um, well, yeah, the engineering solutions to all mm -hmm. of this, uh, including, you know, all the possibilities, for instance, that are opened up when autonomous vehicles become much more common. So uh, I would look to engineers to do that. Uh, and I think that um, dealing with congestion, dealing with, obviously, you know, pollution, all of the physical downsides to densification uh, is a rich mine for engineers to... Uh, uh, um, to dig away at, you know, for the next, well, into the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. So if you then take it to a campus level, and with the changes that you've spoken about already, how do you see campuses needing to change into the future and, and what role do you see engineers being able to play in that? It's already the case that the universities are overcapitalised with lecture theatres. Uh, at the Melbourne Business School, we're, we're planning, we're seeking planning approval for a new 11-storey building and... There will be no enormous lecture theatres in that building. That technology is just gone. Think about how much capital, how much space, how much bricks and mortar is devoted to that particular function. One person standing in front, surrounded by 1,500 people in tiered lectures. If you're going to change that, you change the whole physical structure of the building. What will be important is that the and we're hoping to build this, and our architects and engineers are doing exactly that as we speak, if you like, coming up with a framework, a structure of a building that will facilitate as much human interaction uh, as well as small group engagement, as well as socialising, as well as stimulus, of in, you know, involving business directly, incubators, some businesses, possibly Oricon, right, taking some space in this building where literally co-developing and co-working with students, with faculty, on ideas. Optimising the assets that the universities have is really topical. There's an opportunity to not only share and utilise the assets better within a university, including research assets, but I also wonder how much of an opportunity there is to share outside of a university 
to be able to get the best that we can out of the investments that we put into research assets. What are your thoughts on that? Certainly the University of Melbourne is, is um, heavily into an investigation exactly of what it calls its estate, uh, which, to your point, is uh, what property do we own, what buildings do we do we own, where are they located, uh, and are they optimised for the functions which they perform? Uh, and when we think about that optimization, we're thinking about that in the context of the changing dynamic of what it is we're trying to do, even the the use of laboratory space and the capacity for scientists to engage with others outside is changing and we're opening up spaces and moving things around. Uh, given that we're moving to a knowledge economy, well, we are in a knowledge economy and that's the future, as I tried to say a bit earlier on, the natural um, consonance between the life of the city and the life of the university is growing, not shrinking. The city used to be essentially about manufacturing or even agriculture, right? And so the university was extremely distant from that. The world of commerce and the world of the universities are coming closer together, not further apart. And so the capacity for this mutual co-design, co-experimentation, you know, learning from one another, I think there's more of that to come right across the disciplines, not just in business, I might add. So that's a segue to thinking then about the projects that we do and the infrastructure mm -hmm. that we create as a platform for research and innovation and, and learning. I'm yeah. wondering what your reflections are on that as, a, I guess, a, a way that engineers can play yeah. a, a direct role in yeah. furthering knowledge. What resonates with me as I hear you speak there is, is again, this idea that, that engineers are sort of, you know, genetically, if you like, mm. um, inclined to, to, to practical outcomes, to making things work. And... Projects are ways in which that that learning, that the sort of theory that goes with it, can be combined with a practical reality and understanding. Learning by doing, call it what you like. Uh, so, if you want to, if your suggestion or your proposal, um, Susie, is that is that engineering, you know, by definition, is is used to this idea of co-designing and co delivery because that's the way it actually works. That if if that's the intuition, then much more of of academic life will be involved with that type of interaction because, as I say, in a, in a knowledge economy, there's a much greater conformity of interest between what the university is doing and what the city requires, and engineering is an expression of that. So if it's the case that the engineering faculty, through its emphasis on project work, can mm -hmm. lead the rest of the university into thinking along similar lines and making co-design and co-delivery less foreign mm. to other parts of the university because our engineering colleagues say, you know, hello. That's what we do, and we've been doing that since the year dot. Well, terrific. Uh, once more, we see the benefit of the university as an area in which we can have this degree of collaboration across disciplines with people talking about different ways of they see the world. You recently shared an interview on LinkedIn with Scott Galloway, who's a clinical professor of marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business in which Scott says that the mother's milk of growth is young engineering savvy talent. How do you feel about that statement? I think it was terrific, which is why I shared it. Mm -hmm. And he, he went on to point out that uh, the big tech companies locate themselves in big cities or near big cities where they can get access to top flight research universities and lots of young people, particularly, as you say, tech savvy, 
which would include obviously engineering, but you know, digital savvy. Uh, young people who are bright, who have a, a STEM mindset, right? And the outfit, whatever it is, Amazon or Google or whoever, is able to draw on that and in turn feed it through to the city. I'm wondering if there's a role or, or what role engineers can play in curriculum within a business school. Mm. So mm. arguably there's a um, inherent skills that an engineer mm. has or capabilities mm. that an engineer has, capabilities that are arguably future-ready capabilities. I wonder what collaboration there is there between engineering and business mm. in, in bringing those capabilities sure, sure. into our, our learning. I, I'm questioning more the role that an engineer can play in mm. educating an accountant or educating, you know, a, yeah. um, a, a strategy consultant yeah. through the application of the design capability yeah. that we have in terms of co-design, um, creativity, yeah. iteration yeah. and the like. Well, I suppose the nearest example that I can think of comes from my time at Deloitte, mm. uh, where we had, um, where our chief strategy officer was in fact an engineer, uh, and introduced design thinking, which is a classically mm. engineering approach, uh, to a bunch of well, to a professional services firm. The notion that interdisciplinary conversations can produce surprising connections—I mean, that mm. ought to be what the university is all about. So bringing it back to a personal level now, uh, I have two children and they've just started university and I've got another one who's not far away. And there's lots of talk about when they graduate that the world will have changed and what they study now may no longer be relevant. But I have faith that they're going to ride this wave. Mm. Mm. It's more people like me who are well into their careers, but you know we still have a, a long way ahead of us, hopefully. Um, and I'm curious as to yourself and how you, as the world's changed around you, as you've described today, how have you thought about your own transformation and what advice would you have for others? We need to continue to be curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means continuing to enjoy learning how to learn, keeping our minds active, thinking um, positively about the future uh, because of all the all the opportunities are there, that are there, that it creates and opens up for us is very important. Yes, you can become despondent, but, you know, human hope and the capacity for human development and growth and adaptation are just, you know, extraordinarily powerful and have driven us really since we came down out of the trees. Uh, I'm reading a book presently, some listeners may have already read it, but you haven't, it's really very good, by a man called Ian Morris, who is um, a paleo um, anthropologist. And uh, it's called uh, Why the West Rules for Now. He visualizes how it was that, um, you know, Homo erectus and then Homo sapiens uh, worked out how to deal with seeds and when to plant them and how to husband. It's, it's quite, you know, it's very compelling. It's beautifully written. And he just reminds us of the, in, of the innate capability for ingenuity if you like, for engineering, right? Mm-hmm. Very quickly, uh, we're separated from, you know, other members of the, the animal kingdom by that ingenuity, by that creativity, by that drive to know and to change and to adapt. So like you, I'm very confident of the future. Ian, 
Last time we spoke, I felt like I could talk with you all day and I feel the same way today. Mm. Well, thank you. But time's up. So thank you so much for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it and um, I look forward to talking with you again soon. My pleasure, Susie. All the best. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, please leave us a rating at iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember to share this episode with your family and friends. Follow Oricon on social for updates for our upcoming episodes.